are staying here with me, I'm going to invite you once again to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. So second book in the Bible, starting from the left, and uh, you will find Exodus, and I'm going to invite you today to find chapter 20. And just to kind of get us going today, uh, this will set the stage really well for what we're going to be talking about. And so I want to address everybody in the room, all of us, every single one of us really can be divided into uh, one of two groups. And so I just, I'm, I'm going to see if I can get to where I can see you pretty well. And so I want you to raise your hand if this is you. Um, first group is you are a rule follower. Raise your hand. Rule followers. Be in the house. All right. Loud and proud. All right. All right. All seven of you. Um, uh, the rest of us, uh, if you did not raise your hand then, that means that you think the rules at times are mere, let's say, suggestions. Right? Raise your hand. Mere suggestion people. Okay. Some of you don't know who you are. Uh, come see me later. Uh, we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to help you decide if you're a real follower or maybe rules are just suggestions kind of thing. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about the most famous list of rules that's ever been written, the Ten Commandments. And most of you could probably name a couple of the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but just for anybody so brave as to on this Sunday morning in the hot month of July would admit that you can name all ten of the Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm looking for a hand. Wait, I see a few hands. Come on with your bad selves. I love it. Let's go. Um, and so as we think about the Ten Commandments and, and rules in general, who we are, uh, kind of the way God has created us, and maybe how we're just individually wired, what we're going to find out today is, is that no matter how we naturally respond to rules, the reality is, is that many of us respond to rules based on how much we perceive we can trust the person that gave us the rules. Is that right, church? Give me an amen. Okay, right. I think that's true for all of us. In other words, the more confidence that you have in the person giving the rules, the more willing you are to obey them. And inversely, the less trust, the less confidence you have in the person giving the rules, the less likely you are to obey them. Man, what we're going to see this morning for every one of us, no matter which one of those groups that you fall in, is that as we read in chapter 20 and as God gives this law to his people, that we can trust God and that his rules are always, now listen to me, church, his rules are always, always means always, for our good and for his glory. There's never been a rule that God gave us. There's never been a law that God gave us that wasn't for our good and his glory. And so we can trust the one that gave us the rules, and we can trust him and them for our lives. And so if you have Exodus chapter 20 open, we're going to read verses 3 through 17 together, which is the Ten Commandments. And so stand with me, make your way to your feet. Uh, we're going to do that as we honor the reading of God's word together. I think there's power in our posture when we declare, like, hey, this is important. We stand up for that, and we just um, honor the reading and the importance of God's word, even in our posture of uh, our corporate uh, worship gathering. So verse 3 of chapter 20 says, Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity 
on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. And then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land and that the Lord your God, that that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to to your neighbor. Father God, we love you. God, I pray that this time would impress upon our hearts and minds how much that we can trust you and in our trust of you and your goodness towards us, you have given us um, a standard of living, that you have given us commands, that you have given us a law, that you have given us rules. And Father, even those of us who may be wired kind of naturally to bend against them. Father, we cry out today saying, I'm prone to wander, Lord. I'm prone to fail. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And your goodness and your mercy, God, would you meet with us here? Would you teach us? Would you reprimand us as necessary? Would you grow us in our faith in you? It's your truth that we're looking for. It's to your word we look. Holy Spirit, be our guide. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Hey, be seated. Make yourself comfortable. I promise uh, not to get you back to your feet to the end. Um, and, and I'm excited about this time that we have together in God's word. The Ten Commandments, of course, um, are a spectacular uh, gift that God gave to his people, the Israelites. They have now come out of Egypt. You know the story by now. They have been enslaved for hundreds of years. Now they have their freedom. They continue time and time again to get what they ask for and then to grumble because of it. And now God is giving them a law. We're going to see a little bit later that Jesus, even in the New Testament, gives a really clear explanation of the law that God gave his people in the Old Testament was to show them. The law was its purpose in existing was to reveal to the people their need for a savior they needed a savior in the same way that we need a savior the purpose of the law that god gave the israelites was to reveal to them to show them to be a god to them that they needed salvation and what we're going to find out today, and if you're a note taker, this is the, the main idea that I want you to be able to leave with today. And so I ask that you write this down. God's commands exist because he loves his people. Hey, guys, listen. At the end of the day, I, 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 I want you to know this, but it don't matter what I want. 
I think God wants us to see this. I think he wants us to recognize this. He's revealing this through the power of his word. That God doesn't give us commands, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail in a moment, but the design and the purpose of God's law in our lives, God's standard of living in our lives, the purpose of that is not to be a cosmic killjoy. God gives us these things because they are for our good and for his glory. And when we submit to him, when we abide in him, we see that his commands exist because he loves us. Hey, listen, if you miss everything else today, if you tune all the rest of this out, I want you to hear this really clearly. God does not give us law. God does not give us rules. God does not give us a standard of living because he wants to make your life worse. That's wrong. You cannot support that in the Bible. God gives us his law. God gives us his rules. God gave us the standard of living that we agree to as Christ followers inside of the word of God because he loves us. Because he wants us to love him with all that we are. And so through chapter 20, we read the section that is just the Ten Commandments. But throughout the whole chapter, I want us to see three things about God's law and about God's commands that we can apply into our lives and recognize all the more that God's commands exist because he loves us, his people. He loves us and he desires for us to love him with all that we are. And so number one, and I want you to, if you have your Bibles open still, I want you to look at verses one and two because this is the introduction, but I think it has something really special spectacular for us to recognize today. Point number one this morning is this. God's commands confirm. Punchy, short, right to the point. God's commands confirm. And if you're an astute listener, you would be asking the question right now, God's commands confirm what, Justin? And I think we should turn together to his word to find that answer. Then God spoke, this is verse 1, then God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. That's the introduction to the Ten Commandments. God says, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And we say that God's commands confirm. And we ask the question, they confirm what? God's commands confirm who God is to his people. Brothers and sisters, we ought to recognize that when God gives a command into our lives, when he speaks law over us, he is doing that because he is confirming to us who he is in relationship to us. I want us to recall together the way that God revealed himself, the intimate way that God revealed himself to Moses and the people. This is several weeks ago when we were in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13. I want to read this for you. Exodus 3 verse 13, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
And God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is how I am to be remembered in every generation. He isn't just some God, guys. He isn't a random God. He isn't one of the lowercase g gods that existed in Egypt. He's the God. He's the God. The God that holds the universe in his hands. The God that controls everything that the people have seen. The God that knows the beginning from the end. God's law confirmed for the Israelites who God was to them. We might want to jump immediately to the actual commandments, but these first couple of verses, they provide a default moment where the Israelites might challenge the authority of God's law. In other words, time and time again, they've come to a place where they would go, I, we asked you for this and you've given it to us, but why? we don't like the way it's happening. Why did you bring us out of Egypt so that we could starve to death? Why did you bring us out of Egypt so that we could die at the hand of the Egyptian army? Why did you bring us out of Egypt so that we could thirst to death? They have a track record at this point of questioning the goodness of God and the plan of God as they go forward. And so this might be another opportunity where they would say, why would we listen to these laws? Why should we care what you say? And so God reminds them before he starts to give them the law, before he gives them the commandments, he starts to remind them of who he is. These first two verses provide that default moment. The way this chapter begins needs to not be overlooked. He says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God. It reminded them immediately back to chapter 3. When God revealed himself to Moses and then Moses went to the people and said, the God of your ancestors has sent me. And sure enough, they said, well, we don't know this God. Who is he? He says, I am who I am. I am has sent me. And then he begins his time before he gives them the commands by saying, I am the Lord your God. As direct as God was to Moses in chapter 3, now we see that same level of directness to the people. See, up to this point, most of the time, God has been communicating with Moses, and Moses and Aaron then have been communicated to the people. But now we see God speaking to them. We see that intimacy that God and Moses have enjoyed now communicated over to between God and the people. We see him saying, you are my people and I am your God. Know who I am. Don't be confused about me. God is revealing himself to them. He's confirming for them who he is. He gives clarity to what he was speaking. It also gives great clarity on who he was speaking to. Think about the language that's used here. I, I know I keep repeating this by reading it, but I want, I want to just drive this so home. Who brought you out of Egypt? That's the words God used. Who brought you out of Egypt? It would make them recall the plagues. It would make them recall the Passover. It would make them recall the Exodus. They would remember the flies. They would remember the gnats. They would remember the darkness. They would remember the blood. They would remember the Red Sea. They would remember the process of going through the Passover. They would remember the lamb. They would remember the screaming of that night. God is drawing them back to the place of saying, I want you to remember who I am and what I've done for you. It would make them think back to the Red Sea, back to the manna, back to the quail, back to the water. It would make their minds race. To the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that he led them by. 
It would make them go back to that land that God brought them out of in a supernatural way. As a matter of fact, Exodus 4 and 31 says, When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. God is confirming to them who he is. Then just in case, at the last minute, there was still any possibility of confusion on the people about understanding who God is. He doubles down on what Egypt was. Look in verse 2. Look back. He doubles down on what that was. What was it? It was the land, the place of slavery. It wasn't that I, I brought you out of there. It was that I brought you out of there when you were slaves there. It was that I provided freedom when you had none. It's that I brought you out of the place that was your darkest place, the deepest pit, your darkest night. It's that place I've delivered you from. God's commands are not some sort of cosmic killjoy that are here to punish us. But instead, he gives his commands into our lives, and listen to this, to provide for us and to protect us. You say, what is the point of God's commands in our lives? God's commands are there to provide for us and to protect us. When we see them as anything less than that, we are seeing them in a way that we should not. Instead of looking at God's commands, the Ten Commandments, and all the other standard God has set in the Bible for those who would follow him, this is a great reminder for you and for me of who God is and what he has accomplished. Because who else could have done those things? You see, the people more than anybody else had went through the process of seeing the magicians and uh, the, the sorcerers in Egypt try to perform the things that God had done, and they couldn't. This is a moment where God is saying that, hey, I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you a standard. I'm going to give you commands, and I'm calling you. I'm confirming who I am to you because I am the one that has done what in your life what no one else can do. Church, listen to me. You talk about application for me and for you today. How many of us could stand in this place this morning and testify to the goodness of God, confirming who he is, saying he has done in my life what no one else could do? Church, man, if we miss that, if we miss that, we have missed the point of what God is trying to say to us. It's not that just that somebody showed up. It's that God showed up. It's not just that something happened. It's that what only God can do happened. He's unparalleled. He's unmatched. He's unequaled. Well, God's commands confirm in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 17, the actual Ten Commandments is the part that we read together. God's commands reveal. That's point number two this morning. God's commands reveal. And he starts off and he lists out these Ten Commandments. And we would ask the question in the same way that we said, well, God's commands confirm what? And we answered it. Well, God's commands reveal what? Well, God's commands reveal what God expects and desires of his people. That's why he was giving them the law. That's why he was giving them the commandments. God's commands reveal what God expects and desires of his people. And these ten commandments that God gave the people can be broken into two sections. 
And so quickly, this first section, and I don't have time really to preach through every one of these Ten Commandments, so I, but I want to at least outline them for you quickly. So if you're a note taker, you jot these down, and I'm going to give you the references. I'm going to make a couple of comments along the way about some that stand out. The first four commandments of the ten are all about the vertical aspect of our lives. What I mean by that, the first four commandments about how we are to relate and interact with God. The first four commandments of the ten are about between us and God. So it starts in verse 3, no other gods other than me. And then in 4 through 6, you'll notice that the amount of time spent on some of these is more than others. And I think there's something to be said for that. We ought to understand when um, God is giving more explanation, he wants us to be really clear about what he's saying. And so when he says, have no idols in your life, He's serious about that. And so verses 4 through 6, God writes about that. No other gods other than me. Have no idols in your life. In verse 7, don't misuse God's name. Don't misuse God's name. In verses 8 through 11, this is the last of this first section. It's keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the day of worship holy. Listen to this. Four of the 15 verses that contain the Ten Commandments are about how important the day of worship to God is. Four of the 15 verses that make up this narrative of the Ten Commandments are about how important the day of worship to God is. God expected the people to take corporate worship seriously, and he expects the same from us. So I was writing in my notes this week, honest checkup. That's what I wrote down, honest checkup because listen to me sometimes we can do these little checkups these little self kind of diagnosis things and we're the ones diagnosing ourselves and it's like we're all mds on web md you ever been that before everybody comes a doctor when they got web md and so you know we're all experts all of a sudden in what's wrong with us I, I, I want us to recognize the importance of doing an honest checkup i'm gonna ask two questions Jot these down if you want to process them through the rest of our time. What is your attitude and posture towards participating in weekly worship? What is your attitude and posture towards participating in weekly worship? Number two, what do you do to prepare for our weekly worship gathering? I'm not talking about what happened in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about what happens across the river. I'm not talking about what happens across the street. I'm asking, what do you do to prepare your heart and your mind for our time together on Sunday mornings where we pray, where we read his word, where we sing, and where his word is opened and preached and proclaimed, and Christ is magnified in the middle of it? I'm just going to leave that there for us to marinate in. And so the first four commandments are all about our vertical aspect of our life. It's people's response to God. In verses 9 through 17, the second section is the people's response to each other. These last six commandments are all about the horizontal aspect of our lives. They are how we interact together. So he gives us four about how we are to relate to him and how we're to interact with him. And then he gives us six about how we're to understand and how we're to interact and relate with each other. And so he says in verse 12, um, honor your father and mother. In 13, do not murder. Don't murder. 14, don't commit adultery. 15, don't steal. 16, don't give false witness. And 17, don't covet. I must save some commentary for those to the very end, perhaps.
These commands are not limiting the lives of the Israelites. Hear me say that again. The commands of God are not limiting to the lives of the Israelites. The point of God giving his law was not so they could do less things. He was not trying to hamstring them or hem them in or say, I want to control every little part of you. They are guardrails in their lives that were meant to set them apart. Remember, why did God select a people for himself to begin with? He wanted them to be set apart from the rest of the nations, from the rest of the peoples, so that all of the other nations would be able to look to them and see the goodness and the reality of God. These commandments are not limiting to our lives either. They are guardrails to set us apart. These things serve as distinctions for the faithful. That's heavy, guys. The law that God gives us, the commands, the set standard of living that we have agreed to as Christ followers, they serve as distinctions for the faithful. Matthew 22 and 35 says, And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him, him being Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest, he said to him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets depend on these two commands. God's desire here is to draw lines to the things that matter most in our lives. Love him unashamedly and faithful and love others sacrificially. That when we see the totalness of our lives the comprehensiveness of our lives that it would be defined by these two things that we love God unashamedly and faithfully and that we love others sacrificially that we would give of ourselves that we would give everything to him John 14 15 if you love me you will keep my commands John 13 35 by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another Psalm 119.33, teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I will always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. And lastly, we get the rest of the narrative, verses 18 through 26. is the rest of the chapter after God has given the Ten Commandments. We see the people's response to what has happened there. And I'm not going to read all of that right now, but I do want us to recognize that a few things happen. And so here's the third point, verse 18 through 26. God's commands call. God's commands call. They call for what? They call for a response. When God gives his law to his people, when God gives commands into our lives, they call for a response from us. One commentary says that we can see two responses by the people in this section. In verses 18 through 21, we see that the people fear God. And that's fear in a positive way. Not fear like, gosh, I'm scared of a bad horror movie. But fear like in a, this is the God of the universe who is interacting with us. Over and time and time again, when the people interact with God, they're terrified because of his might. They're terrified because of his glory. And then in verses 22 through 26, the second thing we see is that the call to proper worship. God's command and God's speaking do, in fact, call us to a moment of response to him. 
That's why every week, time and time again, we have this time where we open God's word and we explain it and we apply it into our lives. We illustrate it to the best of my ability. And then we stand and say, we want you to have an opportunity. We stand together and I say, I want you to have an opportunity to respond to what God's doing in you. God's command and God's speaking call us to that. Acknowledging who he is, acknowledging what he has done, that his commands are here as evidence of his heart for us. That we would fear the Lord, respect and overwhelming awe and the consuming nature of who he is. Exodus 20, 18, in the middle of this section, says, All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a difference. And in verse 20, it says, Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. When we know who he is, it changes who we are. When we know what he expects, it changes what we do. Hey guys, clarity is important. And God gives it to us. So what does God expect of his people? He expects pure, sincere, unadulterated worship. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and your herds. This is in verse 24. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. The reality is, when we are confronted with the truth of God, the proper response is always surrender. It's always our hands in the air saying, I've got nothing. My yes is on the table. You move in me. The fear of the Lord as well as the truth of the Lord is the cause for this call of worship, and it demands a response. Many times the overwhelming reality of God speaking propels us into a moment of overwhelming fear, reverence, and a posture of worship. Proverbs 9 and 10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. And so here's my concern for us this morning. I'm going to wrap up. My concern is, is that in our familiarity with the story, maybe even our kind of preconceived idea that we know a lot about the Ten Commandments, that we would say, eh, I know about that. I know about them. I've seen them somewhere, maybe on a poster at church. I've read about those. Or maybe you're saying, hey, listen, that's an Old Testament thing. The law of God, you know, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that we don't do now. That just doesn't apply to me. Let me just, let me just address that for just a second. The reality is, is that that thought process couldn't be more wrong. See, the, the thing is, is no matter how familiar you are, with these Ten Commandments. That each and every one of them is repeated in word or in essence inside of the New Testament. And many of those times was from the very mouth of Jesus. 
And so we have this tendency to approach God's law. We have this tendency to approach God's rules and his standard of living for our lives as something that is restrictive for us. In other words, we try to see God's law on our lives as a punishment. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Guys, God's not trying to ruin your life with his law. He's trying to reveal himself in your life with his law. And let me tell you one more thing. In the very same way that the law of God in the Old Testament served as a mirror that the people would look into and it would reveal to them their need for a savior. God's standard of living in his word for us today does the same thing. See, when I peer into this, I see the reality of who I am and that it doesn't line up with what he's called me to be. And he doesn't do that to me to punish me. He does that for me to set me free. Many of us might have the tendency to lean in, to go, I hear what you're saying, but man, I'm a good person. Many many of us might would get to a place where we're saying, "I, I haven't broken very many of the Ten Commandments. It's not that big a deal. But then we think about the words of Jesus. And when I, and I'm not going to ask you to do this out loud, but I I hope that you would do it in your own heart. When I put my life up beside the commands of Jesus, the standard of living that I've agreed to as a Christ follower, I say, what? Have I lied? Yeah, I'm a liar. And then he's like, well, everybody's a liar. So let's skip that one. Well, am I a thief? Yeah. I'm a thief. And you go, well, I mean, everybody, when they were six or seven, stole a piece of bubble gum from the store. That ain't, let's forget about that one. Okay? Well, am I an adulterer? Yeah. I am. See, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, That if a man even looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her in his heart already. So, so far, how am I doing, boys? I'm a lying, thieving adulterer. You're like, well, hey, man, everybody messes up. Maybe you'd give me more grace than I tend to give myself. Okay, fine. Am I a murderer? Yeah, I am. Because again, same chapter, greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus preaching, go figure. Matthew 5. Jesus said, have you ever hated somebody in your heart? You ever wished that bad on them? He said, you might as well have murdered them because you have in your heart. He said, you're guilty of that sin. Hey, I'm no better than you, but listen. The preacher of your church, the preacher, is by his own admission, a lying, thieving, adultering murderer. See, the law of God makes me 100% sure 
that I need a Savior. And that's where Jesus comes in. The law is not punishment on me. It's a blessing to me. Because it demands that I acknowledge my incompetency at running my own life. And listen to me, guys, I've tried. There were a couple years there where I tried everything I could to run my own life. And it was a disaster. I was miserable. But Jesus. See, it's in that moment that I realized I needed a Savior a long, long time ago. But it was in that moment that the distinction between Savior and Lord never made more sense to me. Because it wasn't just that I needed saving. I needed him in charge. And so do you.